Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we're giving you the tools to make a difference. This weekend, it felt like Groundhog Day, not Independence Day, Mm -hmm. with more mass shootings and protests after police shoot an unarmed black man. What are we going to do right now to change things? Because this is on us now. We can. There are things we can do. So let's talk about them. Yeah, and also the Supreme Court is finally on their summer recess. I I wish they would stay on recess after this absolutely brutal round of decisions. But joining us to break down what happened and what we can expect from the next term is Slate legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We We Win. We do have reason to be hopeful with the Supreme Court, in spite of all the heartache they just handed us. Um, Since our last episode, Kataji Brown-Jackson was sworn in. That's right. And so she will be involved in the next round of decisions. I look forward to reading all of her excellent dissents. They're going to be some really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so anyway, I can't wait to um, get some more analysis. Obviously, in this last round of decisions, Roe versus Wade and the decision to overturn it was a big one. But there were so many other things that happen that are going to impact our environment that are impacting tribal sovereignty. And um, this is really important stuff that's been overshadowed by some devastating news. So, yeah, we needed to talk about it. uh, And Mark Joseph Stern is an excellent person uh, to talk to about it because he has uh, been covering the Supreme Court for a long time and wrote a really, uh, I'll say great. It's not a hopeful, uplifting article, but it's a really great breakdown on, on, on this particular Supreme Court. So looking forward to everyone hearing my conversation with him. It's really important. Uh, excellent. But uh, before we talk about that, we want to talk about yet another – there were more mass shootings over yeah. the weekend. And the big one was the one at the July 4th parade in Highland Park. And my heart just – breaks over and over again. Um, but you know, particularly for fam, like, you know, families that just are trying to live their lives. Go to a fucking parade. Uh, I, I was going to sleep last night and, um, I go to sleep very early because <laughs> I'm lame. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, the fireworks started going off all over the place and I was just lying in bed, listening to all the explosions and um, thinking about all the trauma that mm-hmm. our our entire country and our kids have been through, you know, not military, not people, not people like the kind of cliche of a of a veteran in a parade that's flinching when firecrackers go off around them. But I'm talking about everybody, our kids, everyone who's been around a shooting, which um, is increasingly becoming uh, part of our daily lives as Americans and and a uniquely uh, American tradition. I think the the governor of Illinois um, said very eloquently that um, we celebrate the 4th of July once a year, a a uniquely American tradition, but 
once a week we are talking about a mass shooting in our country, another uniquely American uh, tradition. So it did not feel like Independence Day. Um, no, and I think a lot of it, the general sense that I got from a lot of people was that it just even even before this, it, it didn't feel like, you know, a holiday to celebrate independence. Maybe we have some more work to do before we can we can get to that. Um, I think that the big question, there's so many questions uh, about the shooting, but one big one, we had this victory recently where we had this bipartisan federal legislation passed to address some common sense gun safety laws and issues. And we were talking a couple minutes ago about, um, you know, it's based on initial reporting. It sounds like this young young man who committed, who allegedly committed the shooting, uh, had some deeply concerning social media posts. Right, and I think it's a given. I know it infuriates people that we we say, oh, there must have been mental health issues at play. But I mean, that's the truth. You don't go and shoot a bunch of people if you don't have mental health issues. So that's a huge one. And it, it's in, it's relevant because this federal legislation provides more money to help people who need mental health support get it. The the problem that I was saying earlier is that, you know, based on what this guy's uncle came out and was like, what happened? He was such a good, quiet kid. And like, who who is who is going to flag the people that need mental health issues if their families don't even recognize it i, I mean yeah. we, we and we're increasingly going to have to rely on each uh, like the community and social media companies to say hey this this person is posting some very violent stuff we need to take a look at this yeah and I mean, this new legislation, the Safer Communities Act, uh, also uh, strengthens and uh, provides funding for to implement red flag uh, mm-hmm. and uh, prevent people from purchasing guns who, uh, you know, would present those red flags. I don't know if uh, if that would have stopped him from getting uh, these guns. Um and we, we we do know what would have stopped him would be an assault weapons assault ban. weapons ban yeah if uh, if we're going to be true constitutional scholars here then um, I would allow every citizen to carry a musket and and a, to be loaded uh, with gunpowder yeah, exactly and, and a dueling pistol and uh, if if they really feel like they want to exercise their constitutional right to bear arms. Although I will say this uh, militia has not been well regulated and uh, we certainly need to regulate it more. But that all aside, there's no fucking reason why there should be assault weapons. Makes zero, zero sense. We all agree on that. Um, We have more work to do. That's, that's the only, that's the thing. And I I still want to celebrate this victory. It it goes hand in hand with this conversation about the Supreme Court actually making guns more dangerous with the open carry decision they made in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, That's terrible. But first gun legislation that we've passed in three decades and it's a start it's not like okay we did it this is just the beginning and um and it's why republicans and the nra have fought us on even basic 
gun legislation, like the bump stocks after the Vegas shooting and, and stuff like that is because they're like, oh, it's a slippery slope. You know, once you open the door to legislate to common sense legislation, that 80 percent of our 90, forgive me, 90 percent of our country favors, then uh, then they're going to be coming for more. And uh, you know what? They're right. Uh, it's, okay. it's <laughs> you know, let, let's let's kick that door open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this is, a, you know, a reminder. Yep. We got more stuff to advocate for. Um, uh, the other reason why I said at the top of the show that it felt like Groundhog Day is it, Akron, Ohio, uh, lots of, of protests, um, as details came out about a police shooting, um, after a failed traffic stop and a confrontation officer shot, um, Jalen Walker, a 25 year old black man. 60 times during a foot chase. Um, he was unarmed at that time and uh, had uh, reportedly had a handgun with uh, the magazine that was taken out of it that was found in his car. But it's the, just to use a terrible word, it's the overkill that is so shocking. The violence, the, the you know, 60 times. And then I think a, a detail that was circulating on social media that I think was particularly upsetting for people was that he reportedly was handcuffed after he'd been shot 60 times. And he can't imagine anyone surviving that or much less being a danger to other people. This is, this is heartbreaking and, um, frightening that, uh, running from a traffic stop would result in a, de in a death sentence. Yeah. It's hard not to compare it to um, this guy who was apprehended after a, uh, a chase um, who killed six people, injured many, many others using an assault weapon on the rooftop to uh, shoot innocent people in the parade. And uh, he was taken into custody without being harmed. Um, Do me a favor and get on your knees, I think is what, what the police said in that case. Um, um, so uh, what, do, what do we do? What do we do? This keeps happening. What do we do? Uh, I guess keep filming, keep showing up to protests. Demand, if your community doesn't have a, a citizen oversight committee for the police department, you need to be asking for one. Um, if this is of concern to you, you need to be finding out how you can join the citizen oversight committee because we need officers to, and law enforcement officers to understand that they are in these incidents going to have to answer to the public for what happened. Um, that it's not going to be merely disciplinary action and, and time at your desk while an investigation goes on, but members of the public are going to be um, reviewing the details of your actions. Um, and we also need to make sure that local police departments are following the Justice Department's best practices for using and sharing with the public body camera footage. This is all about accountability and oversight, and, and we need more of it, and we need to be involved in it. I, I would encourage people to go back and listen to our episode with uh, Los Angeles DA George Gascon. There are some uh, district attorneys and some uh, prosecutors who are uh, really working to 
make police departments more accountable and transparent and do all the things that you just mentioned. And they are under vicious attack from the right wing conservatives and from police unions and from all the interests that don't want that kind of transparency, that don't want uh, that kind of accountability for these bad actors in the police departments. So they need our support. They need Gascon is facing a recall up in San Francisco. Uh, there, there was a recall of the DA up there. Um, you know, so that's another thing that we can do is is show our support of the the people who are actually working for that kind of um, criminal justice reform and police reform change in your communities. Um. The, the next item in, in the notes that I wrote for the show, the next sentence says, are Republicans okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they are. Um, one of my favorite things about elections is the local debates. And we're seeing videos from, from all over the country about from these debates, and, and they're not all right. Um, I, I watched part of the debate that Liz Cheney Far participated from in all right. <laughs> in Wisconsin. I, I can't believe that she's like, participating in these with all seriousness. Well, you mean Wyoming? You mean Wyoming? Uh, you said Wisconsin. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Wyoming. Um, thank you for the correction. Um, and then um, a, re- a recent debate for Republican candidates for governor in Arizona has been circulating. And like, I mean, um, so one candidate suggested <laughs> treating human fetuses like alien life. Okay. Mm, yeah, that made um, sense. Yeah. Another said she was staunchly pro-life. Okay, then when she was asked about exceptions for rape or incest, she started thinking out loud and was like, hey, maybe personal choice is appropriate in some instances. And <laughs> like, that's what we've been saying. Um, and then most concerning and, and very seriously is that all the candidates in this debate said that voter fraud was rampant in 2020, even though the moderator presented them with evidence that it wasn't. And um, this week, the New York Times is reporting on a concentrated effort across right wing radio to cast doubt on the November elections in advance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like fun to see the weirdos who are running for office. But the reality, the serious part of this is this party is laying the groundwork for massive distrust in our election in um, in November and so we have to start doing the work now of combating the disinformation that they're spreading. Um, so we got to remind our friends and family voting is safe and secure. Mm-hmm. Um, Brennan Center found voter fraud incident rates between 0.0003% and 0.0025%. That sounds like so a found- lot. That's a lot, right? <laughs> Well, they found that you have a greater chance of being struck by lightning than being impersonated at the polls. Um, so, To be fair, mind- it seems like with everything going on in the world right now, I wouldn't be surprised if we all got struck by lightning. That seems more likely right now. I don't know why. I just feel that. It's a lot about feeling, uh, not facts, but well, just how I feel. It's it's more likely than than somebody um, pretending it's wearing a hat and pretending that they're you at the polls. Um, and then also, this is a great time to start thinking about being an election worker in your community. Yes. First of all, we need eyes and ears at the polls to make sure that every voter is being treated fairly and to back up uh, election workers who are doing their jobs and just and and doing their jobs for the most part without error. 
Um, and then also your neighbors need to see you at the poll. They need to see people they know and trust at the polls. Um, that is how we fight disinformation. That's how we fight people uh, trying to create voter fraud issues where there are none. Very good points and good marching orders. Also, uh, I, I want to double down on your point about the right wing media and, and talk radio podcasts. The right wing podcasts mm -hmm. dominate dominate the mm -hmm. podcast playing field um and the charts you've been on you've been on this for a while now yeah yeah raising, raising um, the alarm about this it, it's really important it's it's one of the main focuses of what we do here on this show and and we try as our listeners know to to have other podcast hosts on our show and lift up the work that they're doing because mm -hmm. it's really important that we amplify uh the truth and we amplify the truth tellers and um, and join forces, which we have been with uh, with our you know MSW Media Family of Podcast and others. But it's really important. I encourage all of our listeners to subscribe to some other uh, political podcasts and try to drown out the uh, the noise because the algorithm rewards it. Like the those those guys get to the top of the charts, and that's where people find their news. That's where people find their information. Yeah, it's easy to, if you if you don't listen to this stuff, it's easy to f forget that we're we're kind of living in different worlds information wise. A lot of us, where yeah. you know, we're just we're just hearing completely diametrically opposed ideas and fa and quote unquote facts. Yeah, there's really only one set of facts. But like I, I was kind of joking around about how I my feelings about being struck by lightning. But that's you know people are uh, are not thinking critically, and sometimes they don't even have time to think critically. They are right. they are going with their gut, and they feel a certain way. And uh, and these right wing uh, hosts are feeding off of that and encouraging those feelings and straight up lying to them. So we got to fight back against that. And we do it by uh, amplifying each other's voices of truth. That's right. Um, let's talk about our hero of the week. Very I, interested in your hero of the week, Mariah. I got to pick her this week. Um, <laughs> So I feel that if you are living in George and Kellyanne Conway's house and you get out unscathed, <laughs> that might be enough to be a hero of the week. But I, I want to lift up Claudia Conway. She's the daughter of George Conway and Kellyanne Conway. Um, Kellyanne Conway was, of course, Donald Trump's campaign manager and advisor. George Conway is a lawyer and the founder, uh, co-founder of Lincoln Project. Their daughter, Claudia, living her best teen activist life right now. <laughs> She's been out at all of these protests, getting loud for reproductive rights, getting loud for common sense gun laws, uh, really just being, you know, like one of these amazing teen activists that we always talk about, who is just, you know, they don't know what else to do. So they're using their voices and they're good at it. Um, compelling. She's on social media, so you can follow her on uh, Twitter and TikTok and all that. Followers, yeah. And and is very influential. So um, glad that she's using her platform for good. Mm -hmm. And I wish her the best of luck. 
grateful for uh, Claudia Conway also using her platform and helping organize around these important issues. And yeah, let's talk about this to-do list. Last week we had Liz Winstead on to talk about, yeah, to talk about um, the work she's doing and uh, and this event, this activist training day called Operation Save Abortion. So um, we're going to keep doing that. Um, It's uh, hosted by Abortion Access Front. It's July seventeenth. And they're gathering experts from every area of the abortion justice movement, live streaming a series of conversations that break down all the ways that you can help protect reproductive rights, helping patients with travel needs, lobbying politicians, getting into some good trouble out in the streets. There's just a few of the opportunities that the amazing panelists at this event will break down. And also, uh, they'll connect you to the organizations in your area doing this work. So we're encouraging everyone to gather their friends for a watch party and uh, commit to being a defender of abortion access. So it's Operation Save Abortion on July 17th. For all the info and to register, go to OperationSaveAbortion.com. Once again, that's OperationSaveAbortion.com. Act now. (laughs) <laughs> and we've got one more uh, website for you to visit. Um, we're asking people to also contribute between now and, and November to um, the How We Win Fund for Swing Left. Uh, your dollars will go to the campaigns that need them the most, that have the best shot of uh, helping us swing everything left, as you know. We need to hold on to the House and expand the Senate in order to get some more awesome stuff done. Um, And this is the way that we do it. We do it by fundraising, volunteering, knocking on doors, making phone calls. Visit swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win. Thanks so much to everyone who's already given. Um, Please make sure that your, your friends and family know how generous you are and that they could be generous too. That's right. We're raised over $11,000 already on this. So thank you, everybody. We need to keep going. So share it with everyone. And uh, and thank you again for, for being so generous and for stepping up. Um, I don't know about you, Mariah. I'm... I'm not feeling like super hopeful, right? Like like the reasons for hope. I, I'm feeling resolve. You know, mm. I, I'm feeling like I know that fascism thrives off of apathy. So I'm feeling resolved to keep fighting. But um, but I think uh, maybe we don't we skip the reason for hope segment <laughs> this week. Oh, that's fine. We've got we've got we've given people a lot to do. My hope is that they they do a couple of those things, at least one, do something. That's my reason for hope as well. So let's just jump into this interview that you did with Mark Joseph Stern about the Supreme Court. Mark Joseph Stern is a senior writer covering courts and the law for Slate magazine. He has covered the U.S. Supreme Court, federal appellate and district courts and state and local courts since 2013. Mark is also the author of American Justice 2019, The Roberts Courts Arrives. Mark, thank you so much for being here to help us understand this both historic and horrific Supreme Court. Uh, Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. 
Yeah, it's it's been a crazy few weeks of news uh, with so much happening around the J6 hearings, civil and now legislative action, which we kind of got buried around gun violence and uh, this term SCOTUS decisions, of which for good reason, obviously the repeal of Roe v. Wade has taken center stage. So I really wanted to focus on the other decisions that the court has made this term uh, and start off with asking you, have you seen a term that has done more damage to our country than this one? Um, I don't think that any person alive today has seen a term that has done more damage to our country than this one. This term was historic in all the ways that a term can be. Mm. Uh, just an astonishing and relentless series of extremely conservative decisions that often ripped up entire areas of the law that had been built up over the course of decades um, and just refashioned, uh, again, huge swaths of the law and the image of this extremely conservative court. Um, and what I think was uh, surprising even to court watchers like me is, is how aggressively the majority really tried to flood the zone with major cases involving such uh, important and controversial issues uh, far beyond just abortion uh, and get as much work done as possible. I think this is a court in a hurry and that mm -hmm. it is much more efficient about implementing the Republican Party's agenda from the bench than the Republican Party itself is. You said it's a court in a hurry, and, and that occurred to me too. What do you think the sense of urgency, is it that they see this as this is our opportunity, we've got a supermajority for the first time, let's really use it? Do they think that uh, there's a possibility of that window closing for them, so they're trying to cram in as many of these big transformative decisions as possible? What, what's your guess there? So I think that the conservative legal movement and several of the justices learned a lesson when Antonin Scalia died uh, unexpectedly in 2016. When that happened, the court had to put on hold a bunch of really major decisions regarding um, all kinds of constitutional issues, including the ability of public sector unions to collect dues um, and, and delayed uh, these major decisions for two to four years. Mm. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, almost didn't end up getting to do it at all because Barack Obama, by rights should have been able to fill that seat and all those cases would have flipped the other way. Correct. Um, and, and so I, I feel that this court does not want to leave anything to chance that the supermajority feels like it can just ram through as many decisions as possible as quickly as possible and not have to worry too much about public backlash because of course we have created a judiciary where there's no accountability for justices who violate codes of ethics for justices who lie in their confirmation hearings mm -hmm. for justices with conflicts of interest you know there's nothing we can do if we don't like the court um except to expand it which seems very unlikely to happen so yeah I, I think that the justices feel like Democrats don't have any real mechanisms to rein them in. And so they're just going to get as much stuff done as possible. And if that makes one party angry, they just don't care. They clearly don't care. They don't clear, care about public opinion either, because all of these decisions are broadly unpopular. Um, 
Let's talk about some of the decisions. I do want to get into some of the solutions because that's what our show is really all about, even though they're few and far between and seem uh, like cold comfort right now. But you po- uh, to that point, you published an article on Slate just a few days ago uh, titled, Why Today Felt Like the Most Hopeless Day of the SCOTUS Term. Uh, it really... Well, it talked about a lot of things, but it uh, talked a lot about the n- kind of knockout blow of the EPA ruling that dropped on Thursday. Can you talk about your article and help us understand what these rulings mean for us moving forward? So this decision is a shot across the bow from the conservative supermajority because it introduces this uh, idea called the major questions doctrine that says that even when Congress grants an agency like the EPA really broad power to tackle some problem, that the agency can't operate unless Congress periodically goes back and revisits and expands that power and in granular and explicit detail says exactly what the agency can do. So I know that sounds kind of dry, but I'll give an example. Congress in the 1970s did not know exactly how much mercury was safe in our drinking water, right? And Congress did not try to get a formula uh, from scientists that it could enact into law and say, okay, there can be 0.01 parts per million, whatever. Instead, Congress said, all right, look, this is a big problem. We are going to task the EPA with determining the safe amount of mercury in our water and passing regulations necessary to keep it at that level or below. And what the court said in this latest case is basically that that's unlawful and that Congress does not get to provide these really broad grants of power to agencies to solve problems. And instead, Congress itself has to do so anytime that there is a major question on the table. And the court doesn't define what that means. So it's just whatever five justices think is a major question that is going to grind the wheels of governance to a halt in a lot of situations and really prevent the executive branch from addressing the major problems of the day. Um, And so I think we should look beyond just the climate change space and consider issues like consumer protection, labor, uh, employment discrimination, all of these places where we rely on executive agencies to deal with new problems. And, and, you know, at this stage, I don't think that any of them can operate uh, as efficiently as they want to because they have a veto that they face every time uh, somebody sues and the courts can just strike down any agency action from here on out. Yeah, the balance of power is is very skewed. Um, and just to bring some more gloom and doom in it, something you all also address in your article, you talk about uh, the kind of final big announcement that the court made uh, saying that they're going to take up North Carolina's more v. Harper uh, next term. This is a truly terrifying proposition that would uh, effectively destroy any semblance of a democracy in our country. Um, You wrote a book about Chief Justice John Roberts. His court has decimated the Voting Rights Act, paved the way for limitless money to influence our elections with Citizens United. And now with this impending decision that there will be taking up next term uh, is poised to hand over all election authority, including the ability to overturn actual election results to state legislatures. Yes. Um, I mean, this is really the most important and frightening democracy case to hit the Supreme Court's docket in many years, if not ever. Yeah. Is this the legacy that uh, Chief Justice Roberts wanted to create? (laughs) 
So in part, yes. Um, and I think we can look back to his time in the Justice Department in the 80s and draw a direct line from then to now. You know, the chief hated the Voting Rights Act in the 1980s, and he has successfully rolled back so many provisions of it. He hated restrictions on money and politics, and he has led the charge to get rid of all limits. But what's interesting is that he doesn't seem to have a particular soft spot for the independent state legislature doctrine or theory, this idea that state legislatures have unlimited power over federal elections and potentially even the, the uh, ability to appoint electors to the losing candidate in a presidential race. Um, he has uh, dissented from some of the court's decisions or written separately from some of the court's decisions in this space to say that he thinks it would be um, an affront to federalism and to state level democracy for the court to um, sort of restrict state's ability to structure governments as they see fit. Mm. And that is um, an interesting hesitation on his part that he doesn't display in other realms, but it's one that is not shared by the other five conservative justices, I think. You know, the, the five to his right are willing to jump into this area of the law and develop this new, very brawny doctrine that gives these gerrymandered state legislatures untrained trammeled authority um, to rig elections as they see fit, almost always for Republicans. I, I think that this is more evidence that John Roberts has lost control. It's not his court anymore. Mm. He is the fourth most liberal justice, if you just count heads. He's not liberal at all, but he's not reactionary to the same degree as the other five. Um, and so calling this even the Roberts court is a bit of a misnomer. I think it's really under the control of Trump's three nominees and more accurately described as the Trump court. Mm. Well, it's uh, it's absolutely clear that this is what Senator Whitehouse, Whitehouse calls a captured court. It's been groomed by an extremist religious right wing minority and paid for by dark money for decades. Um and uh, we started talking about some of the solutions uh, earlier that are, are going to be tough, but you know, I, I, they have to be doable um, because we don't have an option to go the other way. Many of us are calling for much more aggressive action by Congress to curb what is now just the disproportionate power of this court, as you uh, articulate really well in your article. And I do encourage everyone to listen to the article. We'll put a link up to that because um, it, it really distills it very well. Um, some of the ways to fight back against this include expanding the court, of course, setting term limits for justices, uh, and codifying ethics laws that would, as you said, require justices to disclose financial ties and, you know, maybe not be able to rule on cases uh, related to an insurrection that your wife actively worked to foment. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Stuff like that. Um, and of course, that would require electing two more Dem senators in November and eliminating the filibuster if we had a... a any hope of getting that done. Do you think, you mentioned that expanding the court you thought was unlikely. Do you think that any of these reforms are possible? And uh, and what are the stakes if we do fall short of these goals? Uh, the stakes are enormous. The stakes are American democracy, a functioning government, um, an environment that we can actually survive in, the continued existence of voting rights, the existence of LGBTQ equality, marriage equality, the right to contraception. Um, and, and while I think expanding the court is 
you know, less likely than some of these other reform ideas. I do think it has to be the gold standard because every other idea is vulnerable to invalidation by the Supreme Court. So, you know, Congress can pass a code of ethics. The Supreme Court can strike it down. Congress can codify Roe v. Wade into federal law. The Supreme Court will strike it down. And so one solution that I've been floating is that if Congress and the Senate specifically does decide to um, to uh, modify, reform the filibuster to pass some legislation, say codifying Roe, it needs which Biden to include- just misstated that he he would encourage them to do. Yes, that's right. Um, In that instance, I think that that legislation needs to include a backstop that says in the event that the Supreme Court strikes down this law, uh, this other provision will become operative, creating four new seats on the Supreme Court and allowing the the president to fill them immediately. Um, Because the problem is that Democrats can't hold Congress forever. They might not even hold it for another year. And if Congress passes stuff like codifying Roe, maybe the Supreme Court will let it simmer in the lower courts for as long as it takes for Republicans to take back Congress. And then when Republicans take back Congress, then, you know, of course, pass they will new just laws. Yeah. take up the yeah, pass new laws and the Supreme Court will take up this case if Republicans don't repeal the law and, and, the, and the Supreme Court will strike it down then and Democrats will be powerless to do it. So Democrats need to be very forward thinking about this and very, very, very careful um, about including these kinds of backstops that kind of court proof their own reforms. That's really interesting. Very smart. Um, I haven't really heard anyone talking about that specific tact. So um, uh, let's uh, let's get that out there. Um as citizens, like our our listeners are are engaged volunteers, activists, and um, you know we're all freaking out. I, like personally, I find myself in this weird void between being totally despondent and demoralized, and also knowing that that's what the Republicans want me to feel, and that's where fascism thrives. So. Everyone's been asking me, what can we do? What should we do about this? Um, What can we as citizens do? So one thing I will say is that it helps to put yourself in the shoes of a of a conservative, a member of the conservative legal movement. Ew, really? Is there anything else I can do? <laughs> Briefly, <laughs> because think about someone who was uh, in their 20s and a lawyer and disgusted by Roe v. Wade when it came down. That person may well still be alive and survived to cheer on the end of Roe. And that required five decades of activism and advocacy, and it required them to build a huge, well-funded movement and to really take over one of two major political parties and drive this issue closer and closer to the center of it until it became almost the litmus test for whether or not you're a Republican. At the same time, it galvanized voters around the courts. It galvanized voters specifically around presidential elections, knowing that Supreme Court vacancies hinged on who was in the White House and in the Senate. And I think that 
all of that stuff, Democrats slept on. Democrats were not paying nearly as close attention to the courts. They locked into That's a couple right. of moderate Republican nominees um, who ended up saving Roe. Otherwise, it would have been destroyed in 1992. Um, and the, the Republicans played this game so well. I don't see why Democrats wouldn't take a page out of the playbook and say, let's go state by state and build as many good progressive legal regimes as we can in those states and try to build a movement where we convince people that these issues, especially the courts, are the single most important and powerful issue that we can focus on and talk about. So I, you know, again, that's not, that's not like a, a, a magic fix. It involves years, potentially decades of activism, but progressives cannot just be despondent and despairing about this. Yes, they have lost to the court potentially for one generation, but they need to make sure it's not two generations. Mm. And in order to do that, they have to be working really hard right now to build up a base and a power structure that can help them take back power in some future day when the moment arises. So well said. I mean, I mean you talk about local legislatures, which we talk about a lot on this show. It, it, like, if you're not convinced that that's where we need to be building our power, then just look at this North Carolina decision that's coming uh, next term and right. uh, and all the work that Republicans have done for decades, as you said, not just grooming for this court, but, you know, building power in the local legislatures and in the states. So, um, so yeah, that's, those are our marching orders, uh, do that. And that was, that was fairly helpful. Um, I'm going to finish with one last question that we ask all of our guests and, um, <laughs> it's a, it's a tough one, uh, right now. Your recent article was about how hopeless you felt at the end of this CODIS <laughs> term, but, um, I'm going to ask you what gives you hope and you just mentioned some of it, but what gives you hope for the future right now? Um, I mean, one thing is the massive reaction uh, among progressives and especially young people, but also um, people who had spent their whole lives under Roe suddenly saw it taken away. The protests were very heartening. Protests by lawmakers are very heartening. And I also have spoken with a number of lawyers and law students recently who, uh, to my surprise, are not giving up. They are refusing to just lie down in the streets and, um, and, and just take whatever's coming. They are instead saying... It is incumbent upon us to lead progressives out of the wilderness, and we are going to fight like hell for the rest of our lives using whatever tools we have at our disposal to fix what's happening right now. And that gives me a lot of hope. And we're, you know, we're starting to see some polling suggesting that the Supreme Court is pushing people toward Democrats and toward a more yeah. liberal direction. We'll see if that holds in November. But we have to remember that the Supreme Court is, is not very popular right now. And that if we can make people understand that it is the party in power, that Joe Biden is really the, the leader of this country in name only, that the Supreme Court rules this country. I think that we can develop a lot of righteous anger and uh, a, a lot of energy toward tackling this deeply structural problem of a rogue court. And one day, one day, seeing, seeing a, a better future and a place where we as the people are in charge of our own destiny and the court uh, uh, helps us to protect fundamental rights and protect voting and representative democracy rather than fighting tooth and nail to take all of those things away. Wow. Well, I, I share that vision and we don't have a choice. That's what we're, we're working towards. And I also agree, and you mentioned it a little earlier too, this has always been, well, it, uh, the Republicans made it a, a uh, show up at the ballot every election issue, the Supreme Court. And it 
has not been one that Democrats have really glommed onto. It hasn't really resonated for whatever reason. It hasn't galvanized them into the polls. Uh, yes. I, I believe that has changed in a big way now. Unfortunately, after a lot of damage has been done uh, and it's hurt a lot of people, and in many cases, uh, it's going to kill a lot of people, literally, these decisions. Um, but it's it's made it undeniable that we need to fight back. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful. And, uh, and I really appreciate you again jumping in uh, very quickly to talk about uh, – Something the Democrats don't talk about enough, but get in a little bit uh, deeper into what these decisions mean. I'm, I'm very grateful for you. So thanks so much, Mark. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. How are you getting involved? Tell us, send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com. You can tweet to us at bluesboysteve, at Mariah underscore Craven, and of course, at howwewinpod. If you are a new listener, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. We really appreciate you being here with us. We'll be back with some more next Wednesday. Thanks, everybody. W Media.